When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to From the Chair, and I'm your host, Mike Hamilton. Join us each episode as we talk to athletic directors from across America. We're going to talk about topics like leadership, career development, issues of the day, and I can promise you we're going to have some fun along the way, too. So sit back, listen in, and let's dive in. Let's go. All right, welcome in to today's episode. Really a treat today to visit with President and CEO of Lead One, Tom McMillan. Tom, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Mike, and happy holidays. Same to you. Same to you. You know, I was uh, as I was sort of going through your your uh, life story and the things that you've been involved in, I thought of the Dosekis commercial, the most interesting man in the world. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think we could uh, we could certainly sit down sometime, have a diet coke or some other kind of drink, and talk for a long, long time because I'm I'm truly intrigued by your your story, and I do want to touch on um, some of your personal story today, if I could. And then I want to obviously uh, the last half of our interview, obviously want to focus on the work of League One and all that's going on in college athletics today. You know, for Tom, for those who a lot of a lot of us know your story, but for those who don't, thinking back to your time and even in high school, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated and being the top ranked basketball player in America and making the decision to go play for lefty at Maryland and and having quite a career there at Maryland. Let's start with that. If we could. I found it interesting that at the time. You know, I'm a, I grew up in the ACC, so let me say that. And so have loved basketball for many, many years. The old ACC, when there were only like seven schools, right? And I know big, Maryland is in the Big Ten now. But you, as I understand it, you chose to go to play for Lefty at a time where he had not been at Maryland very long. And you were recruited by Dean Smith and you were recruited by John Wooden and a number of the Ivies. Uh, what drew you to Maryland originally? Well, it's a long story, Mike, but, you know, I initially had committed to Dean Smith in North Carolina verbally 
you know, I loved Coach Smith. I loved Carolina and all that. But what happened is I went over to Europe on a, a tour uh, with some of the Carolina players and others. It was an Olympic tour. And my dad got sick, and I came back, and, you know, my dad was really caught up in watching me play. And I realized that, you know, he didn't have long to live and that he would want to see me play. And so I started reconsidering. He wanted me to really go to Maryland. He liked lefty a lot. You know, I think it was partially because he wanted to come see me play. We were about four and a half hour drive from there. And uh, that's what happened. I ended up going to Maryland. Uh, and my, my father saw so many of my games. And he passed away my senior year. So uh, the other thing that happened to me was, it was kind of interesting. That cover of Sports Illustrated led to me being recruited by President Nixon to be the youngest member of the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports. So I was appointed to a presidential commission when I was in high school. I think I'm still the youngest presidential appointee ever. And so the idea of being in Washington really, it, it sounded even more interesting now that I was going to be on a presidential commission. So there were a lot of factors, but, um, you know, Maryland turned out to be a, a very good decision. So. Yeah, a lot of foreshadowing right there with the Nixon appointment, and and uh, and certainly you you did you graduated from Maryland as you still hold the the career scoring average for Maryland basketball, and you were valedictorian. I believe you had a degree in chemistry, if I'm not mistaken, and and uh, you know went on to, to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And in during that time, and Tom, I can't, I can't remember the exact sequencing. You also went to the '72 Olympics, and this is the 50th year of that Olympic uh, Olympic uh, time in Munich. Um, and, and I think that there are two things I wanted to just, you know, certainly there was the very tragic circumstance of the, the terrorists uh, being involved there in uh, the village and, and uh, actually killing some Israeli um, uh, member, team members. And then, and then, you know, just very shortly thereafter, you guys as the Olympic, the U.S. Olympic team had a very unfortunate set of circumstances with the Russian team uh, where the game was actually stolen from you, maybe even just a few days later. And, and at the time, you're probably, what, 20 years old, maybe, uh, 21 years old, and you had this these these dual uh, times of, I would call it, tragic circumstances. Uh, just a reflection on that and, and maybe how you, you process that over the years. Well, you were right. That event, that uh, Munich terrorist event, was just so surreal to think that terrorism would would intrude on this Olympic village. First of all, the word terrorism wasn't even well known back then. Uh, there weren't a lot of incidents of it. If you lived in maybe Northern Ireland, you understood it. But, you know, for most people, that was a foreign concept. And here, these uh, terrorists, these Arab terrorists stormed the village. Uh, and we got up that morning, you could go over there and see them standing on the balcony. And yet we had to go practice and get ready for the game. Our game was five days later. But the way that ended with the Israeli athletes being murdered, uh, it was just heart disheartening and it's so disruptive to the idea that you had to go forward and play, play for the world championship, which we had to do five days later at midnight. We played a game at midnight just to reach the television audience back in the United States. And we were a young team playing against really a pro-Russian team. They were really actually pros. And we came from behind and we won the game. And they just kept resetting the clock until they, finally the, the Soviets prevailed. And 
as you know, we refuse to accept the silver medals, still have not accepted them. And it's probably the most uh, controversial game in Olympic history. Wow. Wow. You know, I would commend those who like to read uh, Dick, Dick Ebersol's recent biography, talks a little bit about this from behind the scenes. Uh, I think it was called from Saturday night to Sunday night. And he was there, obviously, helping to broadcast the games and determine what was going to be on air and what was not going to be on air during that time. And they kept on the air. Jim McKay just went uh, round the clock during that whole thing. And uh, it, was it, was, it was a really – Howard Cosell was the one that ended up making our case in front of the appeal committee. Uh, it was just it – was, it was an incredibly surreal experience that you go over there as a young athlete thinking the Olympics are the most – the highest ideal. And then, of course, you have a terrorism event and then our basketball game uh, and, and many other controversies, and you kind of walk away sobered by it all. Mm. So shortly thereafter, you were honored with the and, – and you basically you achieved this, but, I, but you were honored with the opportunity to, be, to become a Rhodes Scholar and, and study at Oxford, and that's a very um, – that's a significant thing in anyone's life, and, and I'm sure it was in yours. Uh, for those who, you know, many of us will, can't even con, you know, conceptualize what that was like. I really would love your perspective on, you know, playing basketball in America. You graduated away as valedictorian of your class. You've got a degree in chemistry. You've been in the Olympics. And, and you're, you know, you're, now you're at Oxford. Uh, you're, when you went to there, what was your intention in terms of what you wanted to garner from an educational perspective? And then what can you maybe share a story of how that was fulfilled? Well, we have to put it in uh... – in today's light because no one would ever do that you, you know i walked away from a first round nba selection i was drafted by the buffalo braves the owner was from my hometown and the uh, virginia squires in the aba and i walked away from that and i went over to italy i went over to oxford but i commuted to italy and other places around europe and played basketball and so i played as a pro in europe while i was going to school at oxford and uh what happened was Oxford is a two-year uh, program, and it was the most important accomplishment of my college life. People find that sort of surprising that I would mention that as opposed to, you know, sports accomplishments. But I was the first Rhodes Scholar ever from the University of Maryland, and that was just a high honor for me. And when I went over there, as I said, I was playing basketball. And I played 50-some games in Europe and Italy. And my attorney came over and said, the ABA and NBA emerging, you're going to have to give up your second year of the roads and come back. Otherwise, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And I said, I don't want to do that because I don't want to give up my Rhodes scholarship. And, and then I went to the Oxford officials and I said, will you let me go back in the summers and finish up in three summer terms? And they said, no. And until I found out that Cecil Rhodes, the founder of the Rhodes Scholarship, did that, in fact, I went back to them and said, look, the founder did that. You've got to give me that same opportunity. And that's what happened. I ended up getting permission. And for three straight summers after the NBA, I went over there and finished my Rhodes Scholarship degree. So, wow. so wow. That, that was just a wonderful experience. So you, following that, you played 11 years in the NBA um, with multiple franchises. And, uh, you know, see, the basket, your basketball career is, is, is certainly well noted. And, 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 you know, to play in the NBA for 11 years after having had a very successful career in the ACC, 
uh, no one can question your skill there. And, and, you know, I found that uh, the other thing that I found interesting, Tom, you know, you then, while you were still in the NBA, made a choice to run for Congress. And I don't know if it's happened since, but I know at the time you were the first ever professional uh, athlete to run for Congress while also playing a professional sport. Right. And I'm, I'm interested in, so you, you had that presidential appointment from Nixon, right? And you've been a Rhodes Scholar, all those sorts of things. You've lived in the D.C. area. But it, it seems like a really interesting pivot to decide to run for Congress while playing in the NBA. Uh, what drove that decision? Well, first of all, I had the opportunity to play with Bill Bradley on the Knicks for one year. So here we have two Rhodes Scholars. He ends up leaving the Knicks, uh, sitting out about a year and running for the Senate in New Jersey, and he won. And so Bill and I were close, and we kept in touch. And uh, what happened was I had bought a house in Maryland and where I went to school, and I went and spent my summers there and kind of tried to be active politically. And I, But I was playing for the Atlanta Hawks, and I loved playing for Ted Turner uh, in Atlanta. So one day I went to Ted, I said, Ted, you know, I love playing for you. I've been here six years but I really would love for you to trade me to Washington so I can run for Congress, not, not realizing he would ever do that. But I had a good relationship with him, and, and, and so he did. He traded me to Washington, uh, literally, so I could run for Congress. So I ended up playing three years up in Washington. But before the start of my last year, my third year, I announced for Congress. I was going to run against an incumbent. Uh, she then ended up retiring. So the whole season, I'm campaigning while I'm playing basketball. And uh, my season was over in May. My primary was in May. I won. And so in November, I barely won. Um, but I, I think I was the closest race in the House of Representatives, 420, 424 votes. But, you know, I pulled it off, which is no e easy feat. I don't think it'll ever be done again because uh, it's just, it's really, it's not an easy thing to do. And I just, I don't think anybody will try it. Yeah, yeah. You and I were talking offline. Um, you were involved in a couple of different, well, you were involved in multiple different ways, uh, staying in touch with college athletics and athletics in general, but in particular, a couple of different uh, uh, things that you were engaged with at the time. One was, you know, disclosure, schools, uh, you know, having to disclose, needing to disclose uh, graduation rates and, and that sort of thing. And that became an important part of, I believe, of, of, um, of the college experience. And then also, uh, and antitrust uh, uh, bill. So I'm, I'm, would you mind sharing with the audience those two things? Well, the student right to know bill was a graduation disclosure bill and Bill Bradley and I and another congressman worked on that. We passed it. At the time, the NCAA was opposed to it, but it's just such a common sense disclosure bill that today it's hard to believe college sports without APR, without all those graduation rates. So it shows you that Congress can sometimes do good things in pushing the collegiate sports enterprise. The other bill was an antitrust bill. I, I thought that this uh, fragmentation of television contracts, uh, it was just starting because the Supreme Court decision had just occurred uh, in 84 and my bill was 91. I thought that was gonna lead to uh, lots of disruption and I thought there should be a reconsolidation of television rights under the NCAA with antitrust protection. In other words, but they would have to do certain things. They'd have to do more for student athletes uh, and more in general, gender equity, a whole bunch of things. But it was an attempt to try to protect the NCAA. 
and and no one has ever done that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes back uh, in a few years uh, because the NCAA finds itself needing antitrust protection on, on numerous fronts. The irony of all that is that here, here you have, you know, here when I was in Congress, I put that bill in and I said, this is a bill that people will look at 30 years from now. I knew, I called it sort of a, you know, a, one of those time, uh, time capsule bills that you put in and people look at it 30 years later. And when I introduced the bill, I, 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 that's exactly what I said was that maybe this is early now, but people will look back at it as a, as a concept years from now. So we are looking back at that and more now, um, particularly all of us, but in your role as president and CEO of Lead One, I know you are. And, you know, for historical perspective, um, obviously Lead One was evolved out of the D1A Athletic Directors Association, an organization that was originally founded to to, to be an advocate for the FBS and the, the, the schools and the ADs that are, that are in the FBS. And it had a highly educational focus, which I know you still maintain, retain today. It had an advocacy uh, role, which you you obviously are are very much engaged with, and and then when when uh, they when Dutch retired and changed the name to Lead One, and you were hired in your role, one of the focuses, as I understand it, was hey, we believe that this next phase of college athletics is probably going to involve some congressional activity at some point or and time, and it was just totally logical for you to be chosen in that role. I'm curious to see to hear from you. You know, the job that you took and then the job that you're in today, uh, you, in the middle of that, you obviously had to na- help the organization navigate through a pandemic. You've had this, the, the notion of the NIL, the transfer portal, uh, you know, FBS governance, the transformation committee. You've got another league trying to spin up to, to uh, into the D- Division One now. Um, you know, a lot of activity happening. Where, where do you, where, what, how has your role evolved over these last six or seven years as it relates to that particular, particular uh, line of work? So when Jack Swarbrick, the uh, Notre Dame athletic director, took over as chairman, he wanted to refocus the organization more on policy, particularly policy within the NCAA, because he felt that if you could pull ADs together across conferences, that they would have, you know, a, a, a force, they would have a voice. And uh, that's exactly what we've done over the last few years, whether it's infractions or federated sports or academic misconduct or transfers or NIL. We've created work groups of ADs and staff, and we've put policy initiatives forward. Many of them have been adopted by the NCAA. In the infractions area, we came forward with 11 recommendations. Eight of them were adopted by the NCAA. So the the real thinking about lead one was that everybody works within their conferences but rarely do they work between the conferences and that you needed some cross-conference collaboration if you're really going to get things done that's even become more difficult now with alston because you can't collude on anything to do with student athlete benefits but it's so important that athletic directors from different conferences get together and talk about issues. And, th- and that's what we've done. The most recent is this whole FBS football governance issue uh, where a number of ADs, including Gene Smith from Ohio State said, let's move it out of the NCAA, how we govern football. And we got together, we've talked about it. We've had work groups. 
at the end of the day, they came to the conclusion, well, maybe we should need to figure out how to fix it within the NCAA. And that's, that was the essence of our proposal that we released, uh, uh, that we just we submitted to the NCAA a few days ago. But lead one is really a thought leader more than anything else. You know, we provide, as you said, webinars and education on, on various issues, but our primary goal is to try to advance the interests of the ADs, as you suggested. So, Tom, this is more curiosity than anything else. Um, you, you play in the NBA, we follow the NFL, MLB, et cetera. And in those sports associations, um, there's some commonality of thought. There's, uh, and I know the, the antitrust and all that sort of plays into this. So let me say this. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting in college athletics um, is just the disparate, the, the different kinds of schools, the different kinds of leagues, the geography, different state laws, uh, different budgets, uh, but yet trying to operate under one umbrella. So, you know, how do you put all these, you know, you're, you're, you're NCAA president for a day. I mean, maybe you'll be NCAA president for a long time, right? But you're NCAA president for a day here. What do you think the notion is that we have to be thinking about to draw, um, draw better solutions from where we, we've been in the past? I just feel like, you know, everybody's typically in the way that we're structured because the NCAA is the schools, we are all mostly concerned about our own self-interest, right? Um, how do we navigate through that? You're in a key role as it relates to that narrative. Well, first of all, you have to recognize, as you suggested, that there are tremendous differences. There are schools with a few million in revenue and schools with 200 million in revenue. And I think they have to be managed uh, and segregated according to their, to their means in some respects. I mean, it's hard to make the same rules for a $200 million school as a small school. And so I just think you need to, as they use the word federate more, I think that that's a trend that we're going to see happening more and more. And that's just not by school, but it's going to be by sport. Uh, if you're a, a basketball program in a $200 million program, you're a lot different than a basketball program in a $5 million school. And so I think that they, they have to recognize this is not the NFL where there is more homo, homogeneity amongst the teams, but the NFL goes to great extent to make sure that the weakest team is remains strong, and they and they and they do lots of different things, including rev, share, rev sharing, to ensure that the league has balance, uh, and uh, that's a challenge in, in college sports because it's a lot more Darwinian. It's a doggy dog, you know, uh, world, and I, I, I think that has to be addressed at some point in time. Uh, where Congress fits into this, I think it's uh, remains to be seen. They may get a deal done here uh, during the lame duck session. It'll it'll be a, a simple deal just to get it done. Uh, and, but if they don't get a deal done in the lame duck session, I think we're looking at something that could drag on for some period of time. Uh, because there's so many other issues that members of Congress have to deal with. I, th I think the sleeper issue out there in college sports, if I had to pick one, you know, I, I know Alston and paying players and all that are, are, are very big issues. And I think that will evolve over time. Uh, but I think the big issue that could really be existential for college sports is the sports betting issue. Uh, you know, 
listen, sports betting is pervasive around the, the globe. $200 billion of it, $5 billion in the United States. So it's, it's, here and it, it's here and you have to accept that. But the difference in America is that sports betting is occurring on college campuses. That doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. And so if it blows up, because you have scandals in Europe, you have scandals in Pakistan, you have scandals in India, you have scandals, sports, sports betting scandals all throughout the world. And so it's inevitable you have sports betting scandals in the United States. How will the world, how will the United States react if our universities are meshed in those scandals? That's, that's a question that I think about because it could have profound implications for college sports. Uh, and I could go on and on about it, but that's a simple point. And it's not like it's not happening. I was talking to the CEO of US Integrity in Vegas and he was telling me that the, of all the football games on weekends, there's 8% of them have betting abnormalities. In other words, irregularities. That's probably five games that they have to go back in and do a super watchdog on it to see if, if there was anything that, occurring in those games. But the very fact that you have those kinds of abnormalities going on, and you couple that with NIL, the locker room where one player may be making a million from NIL and another player, you know, benches away, maybe making nothing. And it's a, it's a very complicated situation and, and really with, with high risk. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I had a conversation with uh, some athletic staff members from a, a power five conference recently, and I was asking them, and by the way, this was in a state where gambling is not yet legalized. And I was asking them if they had any notion what the handle, what the betting might have been on their football and basketball programs last year and legalized gambling, right? Even though it wasn't in their mm -hmm. state. And one person get, said $7 million, another person said nine, another said 12. And then I shared with them again through our partnership with U.S. Integrity at Learfield, we knew that that school had $174 million bet on their football and basketball programs last year in a state where legally bet on their, their program, in a state where gambling is not legal in that particular state. So it shows the dollars at play. And whenever you're talking about those kinds of dollars, uh, the framework and, and understanding of what all that looks like is going to be really critical moving forward. Clearly. Yeah, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not putting my head in the, in the sand. This exists. It's going to exist. But it is a very, uh, it's a very complicated uh, existence in America because of our universities. When I was at Oxford, they would have a you know, they had the big rowing, the crew race down in, on the Thames River in London, and that was between Oxford and Cambridge, and there was lots of betting on that. That wasn't on campus. That was the only event, sports event, on a campus I'm aware of. Where That's not even on a campus. That was in London. But the United States is a complicated, it's a complicated uh, situation, and I personally, I think the NCAA should be working we need national legislation. We need national NIL legislation. We also need national sports betting legislation. Yeah. Because we need to make sure that the the safeguards in place, because we cannot have our universities blow up. That would be really critical for our for our nation. Yeah. So I want to ask you about two other issues relative to your mm -hmm. opinion on significant things in the in the marketplace. First of all, I don't know where the numbers landed, but I know just a few days ago. 
I was noted that there were well over 1,000 student athletes in the transfer portal in college football. And as you know, some of those uh, play up, some of those play down, some of those end up with no opportunity of, of another place to go. And, and clearly we need to be thinking about, I, by the way, I'm, I'm a proponent of student athletes being able to find a place to go to college and fulfill all their dreams. So let me say that out of, out of the shoot, but I'm just worried about what does all this mean with just the complete free flow, right? And, and I know one of the arguments over time has been, well, a coach can do that. Um, but a coach just has some parameters in terms of penal, penalty of, of um, you know, separation and they have to do it in the year, et cetera, et cetera. I'm interested in your perspective on where we are in this uh, discussion around the transfer portal and uh, would, would, would love to, to hear your thoughts. The transfer portal obviously is a consequence of, you know, everything that we see happening in student athletes is because coaches have been able to move around uh, and, and, and switch teams and, and do that pretty, pretty, with pretty uh, much regularity. Uh, what I think is that uh, there's got to be ways to incent kids not to leave the campus. Because what we see happening is kids are perfectly happy on the campuses now and they're leaving. Why are they leaving? They're leaving because on the other side, there's an inducement. There's more money. Someone is offering them something on the other side. And agents are very much involved in this. I heard the other day agents are making 20% to, to get kids to transfer. And I don't know if that's a healthy situation where kids are just transferring for the bigger dollars. Uh, we need to be creative about designing a system. And, and that may involve television rights eventually where we are uh, giving a kid an incentive to stay with a given school, not just get up and leave. Now, the perverse side of that, you know, some coaches are trying to get rid of kids and they yeah. and push them into the transfer portal. And I don't know necessarily think that's good either, but it's, uh, as I said, when you add all this up, uh, this transfers, the inducements, NIL, kind of pale up, it's something that I don't know whether college sports is going to be able to get back into the, the bottle. That's one of the concerns I have is that this is going to become so regularized. And if they're waiting for Congress, I mean, I'm hopeful that Congress will get something done. But if they don't get it done shortly, it, it won't be get done anytime soon. And there's going to be a lot of excesses in the marketplace. I mean, I hear so many stories from ADs and from coaches and so forth that I don't think it's even percolated in the media a lot. I, I don't read a lot about this. And I do think that's one of the, and part of it is because a lot of these deals are under the table. You, you don't know what they are. And yet I think somewhere down the road, a lot of this is going to get out. And I think that may be the call to action. You know, um, I think, first of all, I think you're right. Um, I think it's interesting what the, the potential impact on football, as you know, if you're trying to transition a basketball program with one or two great players, you can, you can turn your course of your basketball uh, success in many ways. In football, you know, it's always been really hard to, to I always said it was like trying to, to uh, turn around an, uh, an aircraft carrier and maybe in the middle of the Potomac River for your sake, uh, since you're there. I used to say the Tennessee River. You know, it's, it's very difficult, uh, but now you can, you can actually perhaps fix a roster with the number of players coming in and, and maybe changing the, the outlook very quickly. Tom, I'm, so 
I've been trying to noodle on this, right? And one of the things I'm, I'm kind of thinking, at the end of the day, between the NIL and Portal and all these sorts of things, do, for lack of a better way to reference it, let's call it the elite brands, the most historically successful brands, the ones with the most dollars, do you not think at the end of the day that probably settles right back into this sort of same um, same sort of framework that it's always been historically the you know the strongest survive so to speak or do you think this truly gives us an opportunity for maybe some schools who haven't been at the forefront of competitively to to maybe achieve something different i think the former is true i think it'll settle back to the the incumbents with resources will continue to prevail i mean i mean that's bottom line this is going to be resource driven and i think those schools with resources will succeed look at university of southern california this year i mean they they almost made it they could have been national champion uh and they did it remarkably through the the portal and so uh here's the irony of that and you 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 know this better than anybody is that it's putting inordinate pressure on coaches i mean if you don't win within the first year uh then that that's a whole new calculus you you know in, in the past it always took you a few years to recruit your way to success. Now you can do it overnight. And so I think the churn in coaches' salaries are going to be coaches and and salaries are going to be even greater velocity. I think that also puts pressure on the system to pay players because look at how many coaches that we're doing buyouts for and, and they call it dead money. And I think that's only growing and more and more guaranteed contracts and all that. And the optics of that on Capitol Hill are if you can pay a coach $30 million to go sit on the beach, you can certainly pay, pay some uh, young athletes. And that, that's one of the, the problems that the story is not uh, real clean from the standpoint of, you know, why shouldn't players have the same rights as coaches? And it reminds me back... When I was in a hearing 30 years ago on college sports in Congress, we just passed the first million dollar football coach salary. And I said at the time, I said, well, we should be expecting a million dollar player soon enough. And it it literally took 30 years for that to happen. But I I think it's going to happen more quickly now. And and, and fundamentally, you got to figure out whether is the answer to college sports to look exactly like the NFL and the NBA? Because that's where we're heading. And that's the core question. And we're going to have to address that. And you add sports betting to that and everything else. And uh, this this great experiment of college sports, which is the, one of the best human development machines uh, in our country. But it's going to get complicated because... If you, if you realize how important higher ed is into this country and the fact that the Chinese are really competing with us at all levels and our universities are really our fortress and you understand that this, this gets very, very complicated. And uh, from a national standpoint, if we do have things blow up and there's scandals and let's say there could very well be NIL scandals. There could be kids that are promised things, don't get it, deals go wrong. Uh, also, they could be involved in sports betting. All those things create complexities for the enterprise. And, 
you know, it, it's going to be really challenging. The job of the NCAA president is not going to be an easy one. Yeah. Well, I do think these next, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months will be interesting relative to uh, the continued involvement of different state legislatures in the NIL process, uh, the different methodologies of, of uh, what how colleges are, and universities are approaching it, certainly the engagement with collectives and those that will be here for a while and those that will quickly fade into the background. You know, I've talked to a number of folks who have said the collectives that are present on their campus, they certainly you know, rounded up dollars, so to speak, in the first year, but they don't really know where those dollars, as at least as it's measured against the first year, are going to come in years two and three. So a lot of topics and, and uh, that you and I could go on and on and maybe have a part <laughs> two conversation on this, right? But I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to close on something. I want to close on an upbeat, right? And not that this, there's been plenty of, that we've talked about that's, that's upbeat. Um, but for you in particular, someone who took full advantage of the college experience, both, both athletically and, and certainly academically, and you parlayed that into many other wonderful opportunities, both professionally as, as a, as an athlete, but also just your furthering your academic career and, serve in Congress and, and um, so, so much that came for you in particular out of that. Maybe your one takeaway and reflective now on what college athletics meant to you and your hope for those who now are in, in those uh, same spots at the universities around our country. You know, it's a different world. I never thought that sports was going to be the end all for me. That in my generation, it couldn't be the end all. We didn't make enough money for it to be the end all for our career. So I knew I had to have that insurance policy in education. And I really believed in that scholar athlete duality. I thought that was the essence of what college sports was all about. Today, you know, kids are in a position where, you know, if they're a first round back uh, draft pick in the NBA, in their career, they can make a half a billion dollars. It's a whole different, and the problem is very few get to do that. But it's the it's that it's that dream, uh, which really, you know, we all grew up with kids. I can remember kids on our team who thought they were going to be in the NBA, and they shortchanged their academics and their career, and then they ended up stumbling in life. Uh, I think it's even more difficult now. You know, these kids, the sirens call is so great. Uh, that uh, it's hard to keep a balance. It really is. But yet, on the other hand, I look at these kids and, and our schools do such a great job of giving them an education and, and, and holding their hand and working with them and tutoring them and giving them the breaks that it's a remarkable system. It's, it's just that it's going, to, it's going to have some challenges in the years to come. And uh, hopefully we don't lose sight of that important precept that separates college sports from the pros, which is that kids are there to get an education and to play sports. And if we keep that balance, I think it can continue to be successful. Awesome. Uh, well, Tom, this has been a great conversation as I expected it would be. And as I said, we, we could go on and on. I know yeah. that for a fact, based on our, just our initial conversation here. We have, in, and I work at Learfield, really appreciated our time to be able to partner with you along the way and and maybe be helpful where we've been able to be helpful. We appreciate very much what you're doing to represent the, the great universities around this country in your role at LEAD One. Certainly want to continue to wish you success, and we look forward to continuing to, to figure out ways that we can, uh, we can lean in and be helpful with you. So thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Mike. And again, happy holidays to you. Look forward. To, I'll see you on the trail, I'm sure, somewhere. You will definitely do that. All right, folks, you've been listening That's from good. the chair. It's my great pleasure today to bring to you Tom McMillan, who's president and CEO of Lead One. I uh, hope you'll listen into this and all of our podcasts each week. We release on Wednesdays on all the audio platforms and certainly here on YouTube as well for those of you who want to see it in a video format. I hope you've had a great holiday season and we'll talk to you next time. Have a good day.